a why guy since I was a little kid. I was a, a kid who always asked my parents why. You know, it starts at age two, but for me it never stopped. But they were always a, a genuine why questions. You know, you, you're told, don't cheat. Why? Because it's wrong. But why? You can do really well on tests if you cheat. Don't beat up your friends. But why? It makes them do what I want them to do. It's not nice. Okay, but why? It's easier if I beat them up. They'll do whatever I want. But they won't want to be your friends. Well, I can get new ones. Well, as I got older, I had more and more why questions. Why do we believe the Bible is really true? Why do we believe that God is who he said he is? Why, do you th- why would you even believe that Jesus is the only way? And I didn't get a lot of answers to those. Well, after I came to faith, I saw more and more why questions, and I was reminded of one last Thursday night that I wanted to throw to you guys. And the reason I bring it up is they're all based on this issue of legalism Paul's been talking about in Galatians. In this basketball league my kids play, and they have a devotional time before, and this week's devotion is about kindness and treating others the way you would want them to treat you. And the person leading it spoke to him about it for a while, and I'm sitting there thinking, why? Why are we supposed to treat other people the way we would want to treat us? And the answer you got there was, well, because God says so. Yeah, but why? What, what is going to motivate us to do that? You guys have any ideas? Why be nice to other people? Why treat them the way you want them to treat you? Do you see that? There's a legalistic way to approach it, because you have to. And then there's another way, because you understand the grace and kindness that God has shown you, which motivates you to do it. I was thinking about the book of Jonah this week. You guys know the story of Jonah? Uh, Kind of screwed up prophet. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no, I'll run this way. Got on a boat, tried to sail really far away from God, hiding from God. It's a, a sign of lunacy. Adam and Eve started it. Jonah continued it. We still do it. God sent a great fish in a storm. The storm puts him in the water. The fish swallows him up out on the beach. And he finally reluctantly goes to Nineveh, calls the people to turn to God, doesn't really want them to, but they end up being saved. What's the point of the story of Nineveh? Most parents teach it this way. You better obey God because if you don't, he has a way of getting you to do what he wants anyway. That's not at all what Jonah's about, but that's a legalistic view of Jonah, do's and don'ts. Jonah's about God showing grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, not only to the people of Nineveh, but to a rebellious prophet. Do you see the difference there? Well, this is what we've been really dealing with the last few weeks. And today's the last week we're going to be really focused on this this doctrinal issue of justification by grace through faith, not by works. Galatians is three sections, really. The first two chapters, you remember, are dealing with the personal aspect of Paul giving his credentials. He's defending his personal rights to ministers and apostles. Three and four, he's doctrinal. He's unpacking this this doctrine of justification by grace through faith and not by works. And then in five and six, where we're going to go next week, God willing, he gets practical. He speaks about the, the, the life implications, how you live your life based on these wonderful truths of salvation by grace through faith. Now, we've kind of been in here for a few weeks, and it's interesting. You know, there's a part of me that's kind of like, well, let's just move on. We've already done this. But God seems to, to spend a lot of time on this issue, so I'll spend a lot of time. 
See, there are two ways to preach. There are actually probably 50, but I'll, there are two ways to preach. I can try to hit a home run each week. I can, I can try to entertain you and excite you and give you something new, and, and you leave here like, wow, I never thought of that before. And then there's the more uh, biblical way that's just kind of chiseling a large piece of stone for all of us, myself included. Week after week after week after week, and little by little change happens in us by a work of God. Well, my hope is in your life, because I've been noticing it in mine in, in interesting ways with this issue of, of the pervasiveness of legalism, that we'll all come to see more fully how rampant it is in each of our lives and have the joy that comes from understanding what it means to be a son of God by grace, not by works. So today, the end of chapter 4, we're going to hear a story from Paul. He's going to unpack, he's going to use a living illustration, he's going to unpack a historical event and explain it allegorically. Allegorically just means spoken another way. He's going to take the story of, uh, of Sarah and Hagar having children, and he's going to give us a, another meaning from it. Now, before we do this, understand this isn't a way to treat the Old Testament. You can't just take an Old Testament narrative and try to explain allegorically what it means. You know, you can't say, well, God sent, uh, had Noah build an ark because the ark represents Christ. You, you could explain it that way, but that's not really the full meaning of the ark. You can't say, Joseph was a, a type of Jesus because Joseph was rejected by his brothers and Jesus was rejected by his brothers. And Joseph was sold for this cost and Jesus was sold for the cost of a slave too. The point I'm getting at here is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is unpacking the story allegorically. Let's get into the text so this kind of makes a little more sense. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Remember Paul speaking to these Judaizers. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? The law, two meanings. The moral law of God, the do's and the don'ts. And the Old Testament scriptures. Paul's saying in, in plain English for us, Tell me, you who, who want to be right with God based on his commandments, don't you have any idea what the scriptures say? It's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are, in labor, who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those, those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Here's what we're talking about. Paul's taking the story from Genesis 12 up through 21 of Abraham and his promised child, Isaac. Since you all know it so robustly, there's no need to even comment on it, right? 
So God made a promise to Abraham. He says, you're going to have a son by Sarah. Abraham says, I don't have an heir. God says, oh, you're going to have an heir. You're going to have a lot of heirs, and it's going to start with this one heir by your wife, Sarah. Abraham's like, God, it's not going to work. I'm getting old. She's getting old. She's barren. God says, it's a promise. We have a covenant. I'm going to fulfill that covenant. I promise you in Genesis 12 that you will have a son by Sarah. Abraham is 75 years old at this time. You jump ahead to Genesis 16. Abraham is now 86. Think about that. You know how impatient we are? So you read the Bible and say, well, that was pretty quick. Five-minute wait. You got a baby. Baby's delivered. 30 seconds later, this is a great way to live life. Boom, 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 boom. Well, live it out in real time. 11 years after this promise, there's still no kid. So Abraham is human. He's like, uh, yeah, I'm getting old. Uh, Sarah's getting old. There's no kid. Sarah's going, Abraham, I have a plan. Maybe, see, maybe what God meant is you'll have a, a child by me, but through my slave, through Hagar, my servant. Yeah, that makes sense. Look, she's young and vibrant and she can bear children. Let's do that. So she says, Abram, I want you to marry her too. You can have a kid with her and that'll work. So Abraham, being, being the great spiritual leader of the family, says, okay. And Hagar gets pregnant and has a kid named Ishmael. Abraham's 86. Well, another 13 years go by, and Sarah still hasn't had a kid. Well, God shows up. Hey, Abraham, remember I promised you you have a child by Sarah, and you didn't believe me? And you had a child by Hagar. Comment on that. God has never approved of polygamy or concubines. You'll see them throughout the Bible. They're always outside of the will of God. Abraham and Sarah sinned to have a child by Hagar. It was an acceptable cultural practice, but it doesn't make it acceptable to God. So they did not believe God. They chose to sin, and they had a child through that sinful act. Abraham and Hagar did. His name's Ishmael. There's a group of people that are still living today who consider themselves children of Abraham through the lineage of Ishmael. You know who they are? The whole Arab-Israeli conflict. So whenever you, you see a politician talking about, we will bring peace to the Middle East, you might want to pack your nose down into the scriptures because you're not going to make peace in the Middle East. You have a deep-rooted spiritual conflict between two groups of people. There will be no peace in the Middle East until Christ comes back. But this is where it started. It was Abraham's, can you imagine that? Your bad choice carries on for century after century after century. Well, finally, God shows up again in Genesis 17 to 18 and says, Abraham, look, come on, man. Now, think of the grace at play here. He didn't condemn him. He didn't kill him. He didn't say, you know, off with you, be done. He says, listen, I told you, told you again, I'll tell you again, you're going to have a child with Sarah. But I'm 99 years old, God. Abraham, come on. You're going to have a child, and you're going to name him Isaac. Laughter. And he shows up to Sarah, too. He says, Sarah, you're going to have a child in your old age. You're a barren woman. You're old. You're going to have a kid. Name him Isaac. She says, ha, 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 ha. Well, in Genesis 21:1, a hundred-year-old man has a son named Isaac. The promised son. Promised in Genesis 12 when he's 75. Promise fulfilled 25 years later. 
You know, when God says, do not grow weary of doing good, wait on the Lord. Be still and know that I'm God. Does God not understand, you know, the the concept of smartphones and microwave ovens and fast food and on-demand television, like 25 years? Can you imagine waiting 25 minutes for something? It's like, God, I pray that you would you would use me mightily and that you would open my neighbor's eyes to the truth, but you've got to have it done by Friday because I'm going to give up. That's not how God works. He could. But he uses this to mature us. So Abraham, when he's 100, has a son, Isaac. So he's got two kids, two boys now, right? Ishmael and Isaac. A 14-year-old and a newborn. Well, when the newborn turns three, he's weaned. That's when they weaned kids, when they were three. And they had a big party. They, they, they became, you know, I guess, full-grown little kids. I don't know. But they had big parties. It was a cultural tradition. And Ishmael was causing conflict in the house such that he had to be removed. He was persecuting Isaac in some way. We don't know how. This wasn't um, just like an older brother messing with, with a sibling, right? Dylan, you can't, you can't relate to this. This was so bad that God told Abraham to have Hagar and Ishmael go. So they left. That's a historical context. Got a guy and his wife who had trouble waiting, had trouble believing, walked in sin, and finally, after, after a whole bunch of years, the promise came true. But you have a lineage going this way that would live in constant conflict with the lineage coming this way. A son through a slave woman and a son through a free woman. In present-day context, you have an Arab-Israeli conflict that, that's developed. Paul talks about this story, obviously, way before the Arab-Israeli conflict. He says, let's look at these two ladies. Let's look at these two mothers. So he's talking to Judaizers. These were, these were pompous, arrogant Jews. I am a holy Jew. I keep the law. And I love Jesus. I am an incredible Jew. He says, all right, guys. You think you're right with God by the law. Don't you even know the story of Abraham? Don't you even know that this guy you call your, your father? The issue isn't about who's your father. The issue is about who's your mom. Is your mom Hagar or is your mom Sarah? Let, let's take a look. He says in verse 22, he refers to Hagar as a slave woman. She was. He speaks to her then as you get down in verse 24 and 25 as Mount Sinai. What does Mount Sinai represent? The law. He speaks to her as being in Arabia. That's outside of the land of the Jews. He speaks about her as the present Jerusalem. That's speaking of the legalistic Jewish structure that existed in Jerusalem at that time. He speaks of her of bearing children for slavery, meaning in bondage to the law. Hagar was a mother who bore a child by the effort of man. There's no miracle at play. Everything worked as it was supposed to. She was young and vibrant and able to bear children, and she did. And she represents the people who try to be right with God and a covenant with God, redeemed by God through their own efforts. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying to the Judaizers, that's your mom. Imagine the slap in the face. You guys think Abraham is your father? No, you're illegitimate children of Abraham. But there's another mom, there's Sarah. Verse 22, she's a free woman. He speaks of her as a, the Jerusalem above. You know what that is? It's heaven. Do you know what you're a citizen of as a child of God, a son of God? Citizen of heaven. How can you think about that? People say, you're going vacation, especially in another country. So where are you from? Oh, 
sure that I'm a citizen of heaven. They look at you a little screwy. Okay, explain to them what you mean. You know, we all say, I'm from New York. I was born in New York, but I'm a citizen of heaven. God doesn't give us passports. Wouldn't that be cool if you, you got a passport from God? A big E for elect written on the back of your head or something. But she's the mother of the children of the Jerusalem above. And then he takes this, this Old Testament reference. It's from Isaiah. And it reads like this. Isaiah 54.1 Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. That was written, uh, give you the exact, 1,200 years before, before Abraham. I'm sorry, 1,200 years after Abraham, 600 years before Paul. See that? This was, this was spoken by God through the prophet Isaiah to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. The people who had been punished for their sin, taken out of the land and put in captivity in Babylon. And they felt weak and hopeless and helpless and trapped and there was nothing they could do and they figured they'd never have their own land again. They would never claim the promised land. They would just struggle in this weak situation. There was nothing they could do. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, now, now you got it. You're weak, helpless, hopeless, and really truly good for nothing by your actions. And now that you understand that, now, now, now we can start. Now that you understand you're completely barren, you're completely unable to do anything good apart from me, see, now we can start. I've broken you down, so now I can build you up. Well, Sarah was barren, and she bore. And through that lineage, there would be another lady who was not barren, but who would bear miraculously, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who, would came, who came to take the hopeless and helpless and lost and good for nothing, and by grace through faith and not by works, make them right with God. Sarah is the mother of those who would be forgiven. She was the barren who bore so that barren people could bear fruit. Do you see that? So Paul's saying, allegorically, who's your mom? Hagar? You want to work for this? You want to, you want to do good to be right with God? You want to be kind to people so God's impressed with you? Go ahead. Hey, goes your mom. Or do you recognize you can't be kind to people, that your motives are off? You can do nothing good apart from God, but while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Then your mommy's Sarah. Then you're truly a child of Abraham. And then you're forgiven. Your motivation changes. He speaks here in verse 29 of the persecution. It was you know, between Ishmael and Isaac, but law and, law and spirit always live at conflict. And that conflict happens inside of us. We all have a legalistic bent. We, we want to do and merit. We want to do to be right with God, and we want to get from God because we're doing good. Well, God, look, I've given you my money. I'm giving you my time. I'm talking to people about you. Now do something for me, right? We would all never feel that way. But we expect to earn favor with God by what we do, as if we're going to impress him. Now, there are blessings that can come from obedience, and there's discipline that comes from disobedience. Don't get me wrong. But as far as you're standing with God, you're not going to impress him by what you do. But because we have that legalistic bent, there's a persecution that, it, that takes place, a battle, I should say, that takes place within us. And think about this. Which groups of people throughout history have always been the greatest persecutors of the church? It's not atheists, not agnostics, 
It's people that attempt to live legalistically. They attempt to be right with God by how they live. Read through church history and see who the people, who the greatest persecutors of the church were. It started with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Legalists. Look at all the, the world's great religions. It's all about doing your best to be right with God. They hate Christianity. You know why? Because Christianity says you can keep doing your best, but it's not going to be good enough. So God came down and did what you couldn't so that he could rescue you. Do you see that? We'll still deal with that conflict. You, you talk to a person today who lives legalistically, they will, they will hate the gospel. Well, I'm a good person. You're, you're going to tell me I'm, I'm a sinner separated from God by my actions? What kind of nonsense is that? Ooh, easy, big fella. I'm just, I'm just a messenger. Look at it this way. I found uh, Timothy Keller spoke about this. I think it sums up this section really nicely. He says, there are four types of people in this world. Whenever you, whenever you say, you know, there's two types of sermons, four types of people, does your mind start to think, well, I can come up with five and six? Well, bear with me. Let's say there are four. The first are law-obeying, law-relying. Okay? Law-obeying, law-relying. Judaizers, Pharisees, Sadducees, and those really annoying people that call themselves Christians that show up at church sometimes. We've had a few run through here. Um, you can find them in a lot of churches on Sundays, the legalistic type. Don't dance. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Don't smile. Don't ever interact with a non-Christian because, woo, you're going down if you get near one of them. Read your Bible. Give your money. Don't miss church. Oh, and if you do, you should have some good guilt about it because, ooh, God gets mad if you miss church. These people are obnoxious. They, they are smug and arrogant, Right? They, they, they think they're so much better than you are because they're keeping the rules so much better. The problem is, deep down, they're a mess. They're, they're unteachable. They can't take correction because it messes up their worldview. They think they're right with God based on how they live. Two, law disobeying, law relying. There are a lot of these in churches. They know what God says. They affirm this is truth. They just don't obey it. You ever meet them? They come to church on Sundays. And they live like the rest of the world the rest of the week. We all struggle with this to a degree. But I'm talking about the ones who really do it well. Well, you know, I know God says that you should do this with your, with your kids. But I know that God says that you should be doing this with your time, talent, and treasure. But let's be honest. That's no fun. Let's have fun. And they have this, this conflict within, this guilt that rides underneath. Because they know what they should be doing, but they're just not doing it. And they may seem a little bit more happy on the, or tolerant and, and less smug. But... But deep down, they, they are struggling. Because they know, they have a conviction of sin, but they just don't know what to do with it other than compartmentalize it and throw it away. God, I know what you tell me to do, and I also know I'm not doing it. I can't think about this. It just, it's, it's messing with me. I can't think about this. I'll show up at church again next Sunday, though. Number three, law disobeying, not law relying. I don't need this. Listen, I'll tell you what my God is like. My God, whenever you hear that expression, my God, my God is loving and forgiving and compassionate. You see, my God would never send anybody to hell. My God loves all people, and my God says if you do your best, you get to go to heaven. Well, good, your God is pretend God. My God is a real God. But you know these people, don't you? They, they create their own morality, and they're so stinking self-righteous that they, they think that they're God. They, they don't phrase it this way, but 
Listen, I know better than God. I'll tell you who God is. You don't need the Bible to know who God is. I can tell you who God is. And I can tell you what God demands, and, and I actually keep these demands. I'm really quite cool. But they don't notice how arrogant and prideful and self-righteous they are. They're non-law-obeying, non-law-relying people. And all of these people can be Christians. It can happen. Paul's talking to the Galatians who are believers who are messing up into these camps. They're relying on the law. They're mostly the law-obeying, law-relying danger. But you have law-disobeying, law-relying Christians who are riddled with guilt. I know what God says I should do. I I just can't do it. Oh my gosh, does he hate me? Am I not really a Christian? What am I supposed to do? Oh my, I can't think about this. The law disobeying, not law relying. Well, you make it easy for them. These are not Christians at that point, I must say. But you can go to a church and and hear what you want to hear. You you get get the half the gospel. God loves you. God forgives you if, if you take that vague concept. If you invite Jesus into your heart, Nobody asks, well, what does that mean? But if you just invite him into your heart, tell him you're sorry, then, then you're forgiven. A lot of people like that. I like this church. They don't talk about sin and separation. And I like this church, right? So I don't have to be law-relying, because this fits into my... But there's a fourth group. And this is what Paul is calling all of the Galatians and us to as well. And this is why the title of the sermon is Be a Four. Group number four. Law-obeying not law-relying. These are Christians who understand the gospel and are living the implications of it out. They obey God out of gratitude, not compulsion. They obey God because they know they're sons of God, forgiven by grace through faith, and they can't help but obey. Not because they have to, but because they can't help but to. Do you see that? These people are tolerant, they are sympathetic, they are confident, and they have true joy. They know God is my father. Sarah is my mom in this allegory. I don't have to do anything to be right with God. Yesterday at Bible study, one of the the ladies, she was like this the whole time. We thought she was gone, sleep, gone. And she says, I think she phrased it as, Why does God love us? Is that what you said? Why does God love us? You ever think about that? See, the legalistic side says, well, why wouldn't he? Look at me. Look at me. I'm brilliant. I'm beautiful. And I have so much to offer the kingdom of God. Of course he loves me. Mm? No. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You're arrogant. You're prideful. You're a sinner. You're separated from God. So why does, how would you answer that question? Why does God love you? He created us, but why does he love us? Based on how we've lived, what we've done. You want to know the hard thing? You can't answer that. There's no answer other than he does. But why? He does. There are lots of of things God created that he doesn't love. God created trees. He doesn't desire an intimate relationship with a tree. God created the, the heavens and the earth and everything therein. God doesn't love water like he loves people. People were uniquely created. And then people rebelled. And God is holy and righteous. 
God says, if you sin, you can't enter into my presence. So why does God offer forgiveness? You see, this is what we, this is what we don't dabble in enough. How do, you, how do you get people excited about Christ? You tell them who they are and who Christ is. You can take anything in life and unpack the gospel before it. Why should you be good? Why should you be kind to other people? You shouldn't. You're a prideful, arrogant, self-focused person, just like me. You shouldn't be nice, and you can't be nice, but can I tell you a story? You see, when you tell this to your kids, it's helpful. You and I went through childhood and probably didn't hear this. You say, hey, the reason you should be kind is because let me explain to you again what Christ did for you. See, you didn't deserve it. You, you sinned against him. You wanted God dead. You wanted to sit in God's throne. You disobeyed him. You broke his law, and you deserve condemnation. But he didn't just say you're forgiven. He took the condemnation you deserved on himself in your place so that you might be forgiven and become a son of God. Now, when you understand that, and you know God tells you to go and be kind, you should want to be kind because of the kindness he showed you. You know, if your kid's a normal kid, they'll look at you and go, all right. But maybe a seed sticks called the gospel. You know, why, why, should I, why should I not lie? Lying helps me out sometimes. Well, do you know what lying is? It's to sin. Do you know what happens when we sin? We're separated from God. Sin has to be punished. You, you have to be judged, and the judgment for sin is death. That's what you deserve. We're all liars. But that's not what God gave us necessarily, because God offered us a rescue plan by sending a rescuer, a guy who never sinned, who never lied to take the punishment for liars like you and me. So why shouldn't you lie? Well, you should. You're a sinner. But what will motivate you not to is to understand how much God loves you and that he calls you not to lie because it's for his glory and for your good. And when you understand what Christ did for you, ah, now you don't want to lie. The problem is we grow up not being told the why but giving the legalistic do's and don'ts. We grow up, I have to be careful with my kids, we grow up almost wanting to create little moral monsters, little legalists. Listen, don't get drunk. Don't sleep around. Don't commit violent crimes. And I've done my job. Oh, you failed miserably. You've got to give them the why. why. Why shouldn't I get drunk? All my friends are getting drunk and it seems like fun. Well, you know what? Drunkenness is an offense against God. Your life isn't your own. It's his. He made you, like Patty says. He's in control of all things. And if you want to go and get drunk, that's a choice you make. But you're separated from God based on your actions. But God made a way for drunks to be forgiven. That doesn't mean a Christian can't get drunk. Remember, a Christian can do whatever they want. But a Christian can't get drunk and not care. Little by little, you'll want to not. Now, there are obviously issues at play with, with addictive behaviors that you don't simply, boom, legalistically change, but the motivation within is what begins to change. What I hope you get, what I hope we all get out of this, is God's calling us to be law-obeying. We've got the dues. The moral law doesn't go away. The ceremonial law is gone through Christ. The moral law never is going to change. The do's and the don'ts and the don'ts and the do's are all still there. And you are still to obey them. But now you have not only the power to obey them, being free from bondage to sin, but the motivation to obey them and the power to obey them through the Holy Spirit that lives within you. Do you see that? But you're only going to do it if you're repetitively reminded of 
the gospel. I heard a statistic this morning as I was driving. There, there, there's a, this, this Christian cultural group that wants a more morally wholesome environment. Heck, I'd like it. You know how miserable it is to watch TV with kids? Why do those ladies have on, like, no clothes? Oh, they're called cheerleaders, son. Yeah, what are they doing, though? <laughs> Give it a couple years, you'll get it. But we almost want this more morally wholesome environment. Well, in 2009, the divorce rate hit a 40-year low. Did you know that? Christian people should love this. The divorce rate hit a 40-year low. That's cool, right? God is pleased. Do you know why it did? The economy was so bad, people couldn't afford to get divorced. Do you know, you would know this, right? One of the indicators that's looked at to tell if an economy is improving is the divorce rate, which has been going up the past three years. Mm. You look at it legalistically. Woo, praise God, divorce rate's going down. No, the economy tanks, fellas. The hearts of people are still messed up, right? Well, struggling with sin. Don't look at the moral indicators. Look at the heart that underlies. But look at your own. We all have sick hearts, but now through Christ they're recovering. My hope is that as we move into 5 and 6 and then throughout all the rest of Scripture as we, we go through and go out into the world, we understand why we're doing what we're doing. We look at people as God looks at them. Not, ugh, you deserve to go to hell and I kind of hope you do. No, you deserve to go to hell. But I really hope you don't because God's desire is for you to know who he is and be saved. Don't, don't ever allow guilt to drive you to do what you're supposed to do. You'll be miserable. Allow joy. Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. My kids have a song from when they were along. goes, ha, 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 ha. That's always in my head. Pardon me. What he means is, understand why you give because of what he gave you. You understand that? God commands us to go out and, and make disciples, to share your faith and walk alongside other people as they, as they grow in their faith. Not because you have to, but because you can't help. Look, look what you've shared with them and look what they've received. Sonship, forgiveness. I hope we're all a four. We all face the danger of being a one or a two for sure. Law, bang, law, relying. Well, God must be pleased with me. I read my Bible every day the last month, even a little bit of extra. <laughs> How about them green apples? God's not impressed. Law disobeying, law relying. Well, I'm not doing what God says. I know I should be doing it. And man, I am really guilt-ridden inside. It's pretty bad. I keep smiling until I feel better. Don't. Law disobeying, not law relying. Mm. Law obeying, not law relying. I'm a Yankees fan. Years ago, they played the Red Sox in the playoffs, and there's a big chant with uh, Pedro Martinez. Who's your daddy? Is based on comments he had made. Well, what Paul's chanting here is, Who's your mommy? That's a question we're left with today. Hagar, the slave woman, work of the flesh, legalism, or Sarah, that old barren lady, who no way she could have a kid, but with God, all things are possible. Why does God love you? He does. Why does God forgive you? He did. What does God demand of you? The demands have all been paid. Now chew on that for a little bit, and your desire to obey will grow. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for the Galatian church. I thank you for the fact that these people who didn't know you came to know you. I thank you for the fact that you brought Paul to them to bring your gospel. 
Thank you for the patience of this man, Paul, as he understood the patience you had for him. And I thank you, God, most of all for the fact that they were not part of your church because of their performance, but rather because of the performance of Christ in our place. God, would you help each and every one of us be so focused on the truth of the gospel that little by little, more and more, day by day, we could not help but walk in greater obedience and have the joy that comes from it, bringing you the glory. I pray that we might do so in such a way that others would see our good deeds and come to glorify Jesus on his day of visitation. But I pray, Holy Spirit, you would encourage us, that you would guide us, that you would empower us, and that you would remind us anew each day of who we were, who we are, and what that means. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.